Thank you, Lois, for helping us in worship this morning. As we gather to worship, we open God's word, and as we open God's word, we are uh, carefully walking our way through the Gospel of John together. Uh, We're doing that because, first of all, as we read the Gospel, we see our Lord Jesus Christ so displayed. But also, as we go through the Gospel, we we have the benefit of, of seeing these verses and chapters in context. We see the development of thought, and so we try to carefully open that up before ourselves. This morning, we come to verses uh, chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Uh, I'm going to read those verses, and uh, I encourage you to look in your Bible as, as I read. In John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, as we've been saying, this is our Lord's um, words. This is part of what's called the upper room discourse. Uh, This is the time when our Lord uh, meets with his disciples The next day he will uh, go to the cross. And so these are his parting words, his parting counsel. He's giving his instructions to them for when he is gone. And in the context where we are now, Judas is left. These are only the believers now in the room. And he is talking to them. And he talks here about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the previous context, he talked about the fact that they would do greater works. He said when, he, when, when he's gone and when the Spirit comes, they're going to do greater works than Jesus did. He spoke of doing great works for the glory of God. We saw that in verses 12 to 14. Uh, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, we, we talked about, we see there the concept of prayer, that in the Lord's departing, that opens the door for him enabling, through the Holy Spirit, his followers to do greater works. And we, we talked about the fact, that doesn't mean, mean more powerful miracles in the sense of uh, he walked on water he stilled the storm. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. Um, so he multiplied the fish and loaves. It's not somehow greater than that, but rather greater in the effect. Uh, the Lord's three years of ministry of up and down across Israel it looks like the best we can see is maybe there were 500 disciples. They're waiting in the upper room in Jerusalem. were 120 after his resurrection. And yet when we see in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in Peter's first preaching of the Gospel, 3,000 trust in Christ in one day. A greater work. Greater in, in its spread. But now the Lord continues giving guidance for serving him in his absence. So again, he's, he's, he's laying out not just what to do, how they will do it. And he's laying out for them encouragement. And he tells them it would be better for him if, if for them if he's gone, because he'll send the Holy Spirit. 
And I was listening to someone just recently saying, now, if you had the choice, Jesus here in the flesh, Holy Spirit in the heart, I, I'm going to guess many of us would say, I'll take Jesus. Don't we sing a song like that, give me Jesus? <laughs> now, is there something about Jesus in the flesh right here or the Holy Spirit in my heart? And yet he says, you're better off when I'm gone and you have the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. I wrestle with that, but, but who's saying it? Jesus. Jesus says we are better off having the Holy Spirit in our lives than the disciples having Jesus in the room. Go home and think about that. You know, so often with, oh, what wouldn't it be? And I've often thought, oh, oh, to be there, to see that, to hear that. And Jesus is saying, the Greek says, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> He's like, it's going to get better. And by the way, aren't those words of comfort? He's about to lead them. Their world's about to fall apart. And what's he telling them? This is good. This is the door to better. So he, he puts this before them. He, he, they want to, he, wants them to, he wants them to trust him. Uh, so that they might have the grace to do the works that are better. He said, he who believes in me will do these greater works. So the first thing he's saying is, you've got to trust. You have to believe to, to have this enabling. This is a promise not to just generic people, but to those who know Christ as Savior. You have to believe. We, we saw that. He who believes in me, the greater works I will do. But we also see in the passage before us, they must obey him. And he puts that, that obedience in context. True obedience to Christ flows from love for Christ. So what did he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. That, that one verse really could, could take a, a, a sermon of meditation, could take a day of weeks of thought. If you love me, obey me. Keep my commandments. Uh, now I should say, some of you are looking at different translations. The translation I'm reading, New King James says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, put on your, we're back in school, many of you now, so put on your, your schoolroom uh, cap. And that word keep there, keep my commandments, that's a command or an imperative. Many of your translations say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a future verb. It, this is one of those times where it's not really translators, but there's differing manuscripts. And honestly, I'm not sure which what reading I think is the more supported one I kind of think it's the command but command or future he's, he's clearly linking our obedience to our love for him if we love him we will obey him if we love him we must obey him it is basically what this passage is saying in many ways that's a very straight up fact I mean, what, what, what else do I need to tell you? A couple of important facts to notice, though. Obedience to Christ. When, you, when we hear that word obedience, oh, for some people, right away, 
the next getting a little stiffer, uh, getting a little uncomfortable. Obey, that's uh, obedience. Notice what he's saying. Obedience is not just a mere formalism, an outward conformity. That's what the Pharisees did. They were masters of outward obedience. While the heart was disengaged from God. If you think about it, what's the, what's the first and greatest commandment Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. And they were doing that. But boy, they could, they could not only kept the laws of the Bible, but all their own laws and rules. And so he's saying to them, obedience is not just dead outward conformity. True obedience comes from the fountain of love. True obedience is, is, is an expression of our love for God. And so what that says is true obedience comes from a relationship. Isn't that, I mean, doesn't that sound fair? I mean, am I pushing that when I say that love is, is, is a relational word? So often, we, we think of obedience, conformity to rules, as merely that. But he is saying obedience is part of our relationship with God, our loving relationship with Christ. It's, it's a, our obedience reflects a heart of warmth and affection. And again, warmth and affection, often we think of that as that's in a different part of the dictionary from the word obey. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, do obey me. So obedience isn't just outward. It's a, heart, it's a reflection of a heart. Then notice that true love for Christ will result in obedience. If you truly love Christ, um, this, this helps us understand what it means to love God. If some, you know, people today will sometimes say, I, I love God. And, and Jesus here offers us a test. How can I tell that you love God? Because you obey him. So, so this one passage gives us two Aspects, two facets of understanding that. First of all, that true obedience is not just external, it comes from the heart. But secondly, true love is not just feelings. You know, some, sometimes we'll get into this mode of to love God as, as um, when I go to church or sing hymns or whatever it might be, I, I, I get this warm feeling. That's, that's, that's okay, warm feelings are fine. But what Jesus is saying is not, if you love me, you'll feel warm. You know, your, your heart will, will, will pitter-patter. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. So, true obedience is an expression of love. True love is expressed in obedience. This destroys the idea of what's sometimes called antinomianism. That's a, that's a fancy word. For, it literally means to be against law, against rules. There are some that so emphasize grace in the Christian life that they literally say any kind of demand of obedience is, is anti-grace. I'm rather inclined to lean towards the idea that Jesus is right. And so when he says, 
true love for him is, is necessarily connected to obedience. What he's saying is he's, he's, the Christian life is a life of obedience. And that's how we express our love. So what he's saying is grace and obedience are not enemies. True grace makes us obedient. It's out of grace that we have the desire and the ability. When we're without grace, we have no desire, no ability. And, but somehow we, that's where the, the formalism comes in. Somehow maybe I'll make God approve of me. I'll win blessing. I'll, I'll win man's approval if I do these things. And he's saying, no. True, be, true, if you truly know me, because you love me, you'll obey me. And so this, this destroys that idea that expecting obedience is legalism. Uh, legalism, that's another category. But in other words, what he's saying is true heart obeys Christ. Obeys Christ. So when he said, it's good that I'm leaving because now you'll be able to do greater works. And what he's telling us here is those greater works will come out of a heart of love. Think of one of the greatest missionaries that has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. He, he covered, he, he was on two different continents. He went from city to city preaching, and, and God blessed. I mean, churches all over were established. Many people came to know the Lord through his ministry. You read, for example, the book of Romans, though, when he speaks about his heart for the Jewish people. He says, I, I would gladly give, condemn my own soul. I would, I would gladly exchange my salvation for theirs. That's love. That's love. And so his obedience, his, his zeal to do, came from a heart of love for the Lord and a heart of love for people. So those greater works, when Peter could get up and stand. Now think of who Peter is. Peter's the guy that is, when Jesus is arrested, he flees. Peter is the guy that three times that night denies Jesus. And of all things, a servant girl says, Don't, aren't you one of those people with Jesus? And he denies it. Less than two months later, he's standing up in Jerusalem and crying out his, the gospel of Jesus Christ out of love for Christ. So those greater works will come from a fountain of the love for the Lord. If you love me, you'll obey me. Now there's a can I say a, a side application here about that helps us understand obedience? Parents, love and obedience go together. Sometimes uh, we, we hear the attitude that to expect a child to obey is unloving. Um, there are those that think somehow if you are a loving parent, you will not use the word no. That doesn't seem consistent with what Jesus is saying, does it? He's saying, what, and, and you know, the family's supposed to be a loving relationship. And what he's saying is love and obedience go together. And frankly, parents, the most loving thing you can do is help your child understand that they can express their love through obedience. That's starting on the path of discipleship. So love and obedience go together. Don't buy into this thing that somehow expecting obedience whether it be to family rules and or to Christ, is somehow unloving. 
I read a story this week. It kind of struck me as interesting in this light. This uh, lady shares this. My, my son Michael was, was four years old the night I found him sobbing uncontrollably in the hallway. Concerned, I, I knelt next to him and, and drew him close. What's the matter, sweetheart? Are you hurt? He shook his head and, and turned to me. But I was unprepared for his response. Daddy said a bad word to me. I almost laughed out loud. I'd known my husband 12 years and had rarely heard him even raise his voice. But Michael had heard him say something, and I was curious enough to want to know what it was. Honey, what bad word did Daddy say? And seeing a chance for sympathy, my sensitive four-year-old stopped crying and blurted out, Obey! I never think of that incident, she writes, now without asking my Heavenly Father to keep me from believing, as my son did, that obey is a bad word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obedience to Christ is not contrary to grace. It's an expression of grace. Because honestly, if we truly love the Lord, we wouldn't want to displease him in anything, would we? You know, the scripture even talks about the fact that our disobedience can grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And doesn't love want to please? And so Jesus was giving his disciples some words of encouragement. As you go forth, we're going through, guys, you're going to go through a terrible transition here. If you love me, obey me. Trust me, obey me. Kind of sounds like a song, doesn't it? Uh, then in verses 16 to 17, he speaks of another helper. He says, and I will pray, you know, if, you believe, if you believe me, if you, if you love me, obey me. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The Lord now makes another promise. Again, he's, I keep thinking of this. this. This is like a father, a grandfather. He knows that his departure is soon, and it's so important. Every word, every breath he, he expresses, his time is limited. It's all important. He makes another promise about their future service and future works. He says they will, are going to be enabled for service by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, if you've got to believe me. You've got to trust me. It, it has to come out of a spirit of love. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to enable you to do these things. And he, and, and he assures them that he's going to ask the Father to give them the Holy Spirit. Um, now my translation says, I will pray the Father. Uh, that word pray, you know, when, when, he, when we think of prayer, we think of a person praying to God. Normally Jesus doesn't use that word for, the normal word for prayer when he speaks of, of what he when he is talking to the Father, so you know he's, he his prayer is not the same as our prayer because he's on a different level. He himself is God. That's my point. And so, literally, this this word "pray" here, most of the time in the New Testament, maybe uh, is it, it means just simply to ask. See, Jesus is fully God. Now, again, yes, God is the Father, but 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 he he will ask his Father. You know, that, that suggests it's not simply the prayer of I'm like I'm praying for you, you're praying for me. 
This is God the Son speaking to God the Father. Send them the Holy Spirit. And then, as we might do, he might say, as we agreed back in eternity past, remember, this is the plan. He's going to ask the Father, okay, now's the time. Send the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will pray, and he will give you another helper. Now, so, so notice what he's saying here. I'm going to, when I'm gone, I'm going to ask the Father to send you another helper. And that other holy helper is the Holy Spirit. You can see that when he says the other helper is the, the, the Spirit of truth. He's talk, we'll get to that, but, but he's talking here about the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in the Gospels, you don't, spend a lot, you don't see a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But in the upper room discourse, you see the Holy Spirit discussed quite a bit. See, here's the point. Jesus is leaving, but the helper is coming, and he wants them to understand. That's, it's to their benefit, but, but the point is he's, 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 he wants them to know they're not just on their own now. The Holy Spirit will come. He's going to ask the Father to send him. Now, notice he calls him another helper. I don't like to get too technical too often, but in, in the Greek language of the New Testament, there's, there's two words for another. One word is heteros, which means different, of a different kind. The other Greek word is alos, which means another of the same kind. So maybe, you know, I don't know, think of maybe screwdrivers. And, and you say, hand me... A, a Phillips, hand me a screwdriver and they hand you a Phillips, but you want the slot head. Give me a different screwdriver. Um, or you, if maybe they hand you a Phillips, but you want a bigger one. Give me another. Another the same kind, but, different, but, 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 but not this one. And so when, he's, when he says another helper, he's saying, I want, I'm, God is going to send a helper that's like me. Another help as the same kind of helper that I am. So when he's telling us about the Holy Spirit, he's of the same sort as Jesus is. By the word, that word helper, I think some of your translations may have the word advocate. Uh, This word helper is only used less than a dozen times, less than ten times in the New Testament. Over in 1 John, John will talk about Jesus being our advocate. That's a legal term. That's like our attorney. Uh, when we are accused by Satan, Jesus is our attorney. Some of you ancient people here have watched Perry Mason. Uh, boy, you know it's kind of fun because they always turn out the same, don't they? I don't. Did he ever lose? But but and also nowadays everything's everything's you know you can watch videos of everything, courtroom cameras. If ever you've seen a case where now, this never happens in Perry Mason. No one ever gets to the point, it seems like, the judge is announcing a verdict. It's, the case is always short-circuited because Perry's so brilliant. But in the real court cases, there's a verdict. Have you ever seen what happens? You know, especially if there's a jury. The jury hands the note up. The judge reads it. And he says, uh, will the defendant rise? And the defendant rises. But if you pay attention, you'll notice the attorney, his attorney is right next to him. He's right at his side. And the word helper or advocate in the Greek means to call alongside. It's a scary thing to go into court. 
It's especially scary if you don't know what you're doing and you go alone. And so an advocate is someone who's by your side and, and will speak on your behalf. But that idea, basically the word helper means someone who is called alongside. And that's why the word can, is sometimes translated comforter. Because it's awfully hard to comfort someone if you're just texting to them. Real comfort, well, I guess there's some memes that are especially, you know, you send them a big heart, that'll do it. But, but, a, but there's something about an arm around the shoulder coming alongside. That's this word here. And so it, it means all kinds of things. He might come alongside to help you against accusation from Satan. He might come alongside to give you strength, be your helper. He might come alongside to be your comforter. He might come alongside to say, get moving. And the Holy Spirit is all of the above. That's why the, this term is a helper works. But the point is, he's like Jesus. And just as Jesus was alongside of them for three years, teaching them, correcting them, sometimes sternly, to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, enabling them, guiding them. He's saying now he's going to send another helper. So Jesus is a helper. God's going to send another. But he's of the same sort. And let's not forget that the Bible is clear. God, John is extremely clear. Jesus is God. And so if someone is coming who is the same as Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is God. So here we start seeing John is opening up to us the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's another of the same sort. So we're, so we're seeing that this Holy Spirit is, is God. Can I then obviously make a statement, and the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus is a person. Of course. Sometimes we get a little sloppy in the way we speak. We might refer to the Holy Spirit as it, or speak of the Holy Spirit as an influence, a power, a strength. He is a person. He is a divine person. He is God. And so, so we'll, and we'll see more of this as we develop in John, but, but just this expression, another helper, helps us understand who he is. Because I know the, Holy, the, the disciples are probably wrestling with, who's this helper? Well, not can't be John the Baptist. He's already gone. You know, who's, he's, he's going to be like Jesus. Well, John the Baptist was good, but he's not like Jesus. He was just a prophet. Jesus is God in the flesh. So God's going to send us another divine person to help us. And so, and, and again, that tells us who he, what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to be a come alongside and meet our needs. So Jesus is about to leave, but the Holy Spirit is about to come. And he's going to continue the ministry that Christ has begun among them. And then verse 16, he says, I'll pray the Father that he'll give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now, this shows where he's not like Jesus. Jesus was with them for three years and left. Now, a divine person is going to come alongside you who will never leave you, who will always be with you. 
The Lord's ministry on earth was a limited time in his, in his presence. The Holy Spirit will not leave God's people. That's an incredibly important truth. So the idea that somehow uh, we can lose God's blessing in our life, our salvation, the Holy Spirit's always with us. Notice what he goes on and says in verse 17, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it, the world, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, notice Jesus said, I am the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. That shows their, their oneness, their sameness. What is the spirit of truth? Well, he's like Jesus. And he's the one who will be revealing truth to the apostles. Remember on one of those rare occasions when Peter got it right? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that? Thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And in Greek, Jesus says, bingo. <laughs> you got it, Peter. How did you get that? My father told you that. How, did the, how is it the apostles will know truth? The spirit of truth will be revealing to them. And later on, in the, he says, he's going to cause them to remember what he's taught them. So he's going to bring to mind the things that they were taught. He's going to give them understanding, and he's going to be revealing more truth. He is the spirit of truth. So he, he re, will reveal to the apostles. That's how we get our New Testament. He gives them the inspiration to write these things. But he's also the spirit of truth in that he helps us to read this and understand the truth. He teaches. He gives understanding. And so, so there's the idea of, we call it the doctrine of inspiration, guiding the, the prophets and apostles to write the scriptures. And there's the doctrine of illumination, the same Holy Spirit who guided them to, to write the truth, guides us to understand the truth. And he'll give, he gives understanding to every believer in every generation. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to the truth and enables us to trust in Christ as Savior. So he is the spirit of truth. It says the world doesn't receive the benefit of his ministry, whom the world cannot receive. There is a great tragedy facing America. They're talking about taking AM radios out of the cars. <laughs> Maybe that's not such a great tragedy. But the point is, uh, if you, what, what's the problem? If you don't have an AM radio in your car, then guess what? You can't listen to AM radio, at least not with that radio. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not an electrical engineer, but that's my understanding. If you're not equipped to receive the signal, you're not going to get the signal. And what's he saying? Those who do not know Christ, those who do not follow Christ, the world, that's that system that's opposed to God, cannot receive the truth from the Holy Spirit. It takes God's grace to open their, their heart and life, enabling them to receive the truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows. So when the Holy Spirit is, for a believer, he's with us, he's in us, he enables us to the Holy Spirit, I mean to the world. That's an AM transmission, and they don't have the radio. 
you know, sending a TV signal when you don't have a TV. And so the world is um, unable. They, can't, they don't know the Holy Spirit where, where he says, I'm going to send it to you. He'll be with you. He'll be in you. The, the, the world does have a bit of a relationship to the Holy Spirit. You can see this in John 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus later will say, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he, here's his ministry to the world. He'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. What he will do is he's going to convict the world. But to us, he illumines us to the truth. He enables us to receive the truth. But, but he has only a condemning ministry to the world. So the world can't receive him, doesn't know him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The, the believers already had, they already had a relationship. The Holy Spirit was with them. You know him, he dwells with you, he will be in you. They already had experienced his presence. He was with them, bringing them to faith. Enabling, remember Jesus sent them out to perform miracles. How did they do that? The Holy Spirit enabled them to do that. So he was with them. It's kind of like the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The whole t we, we, you read in the Old Testament sometimes, the Spirit of God came upon so-and-so, and they prophesied. The Spirit of God came upon someone. And so that was a temporary enabling for service. But it could be removed. That's why David prayed what he did in Psalm 51, verse 11. In Psalm 51, verse 11, here's David's prayer. Remember, he's, this is his, after his sin with Bathsheba, and he's confessing his guilt. What does he say? Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. A New Testament believer can't pray that, because he says, he's with you forever. But in the Old Testament, it was a temporary ministry, and basically as king, God, the Holy Spirit was with him, enabling him. God enabled him to write the Psalms, and he's saying, because of my disobedience, don't take him away. So the disciples were like Old Testament believers, believers in their relationship to the Holy Spirit. He was with them, enabling them. But he's saying, he's now with you. He will be in you. After the coming Holy Spirit, it's a permanent indwelling. Another passage in mind, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, I'll just read a part of that. Speaking to believers, Paul says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. You know, when you wanted to show something was authentic and, and, or property of the king, you'd put a seal on it. And he says the Holy Spirit is God's seal of approval on us, if you will. And it says that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. A guarantee is like an earnest. That was the term used for an earnest payment. You know, when you pay down and say, I'm gonna, here, here's, here's so much money, I'm going to come back and buy this car tomorrow. That's earnest money. What happens if you don't come back tomorrow and buy the car? You lose the car and the earnest money. What happens if you get the Holy Spirit as your earnest and God takes away your salvation? He doesn't give you the salvation he promised. Well, God loses the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not going to work. 
That's the whole point. When you're born again, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He is God's guarantee you're going to make it all the way to salvation. Not because you're so great, so wonderful, because God's not going to let go of you. So in John 10, Jesus said, you're in the hand of Jesus, and you're in the hand of the Father. And now he tells us in, in here and then in Ephesians chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit's not letting go of you. You are triply secure. So he says, the Holy, you will, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and, you will, and he'll be that helper. And then he says, you will not be forsaken in verse 18. He says, I will leave you, not leave you orphans. I will come to you. An orphan is one whose parents are gone. Orphan, we usually think of someone young, not adult age, unable to care for themselves, and now parentless. He says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to come to you. So here's another promise. When he leaves, then by dying on the cross, he's not going to leave them orphans, no one to care for their needs. Instead, he says, I'm going to come to you. See, if Jesus died and stayed in the tomb, what hope would you have? There was someone, a Christian was having a debate with uh, some non-Christian. And he said, you Christians, you poor things, you worship Jesus. All the world leaders, they worship, uh, they worship their religious leaders. The Muslims can take you to Muhammad's grave. Buddhists can take you to Buddha's grave. Christians, you go to... Oh, wait a minute. That's not good on our part. <laughs> Your grave is empty. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, in other words, it wasn't over. He wasn't defeated. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come to you. And so when he showed up that Sunday morning, they were not expecting him. But he came in just the same. And the whole point was, we win. I'm not abandoning you. I have conquered death. And the Holy Spirit will come and equip and enable you. And so in verse 19, he goes further and says, A little while longer, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And so his very resurrection will be the assurance they're not abandoned. And the Holy Spirit is coming. What's our takeaway from the, these, these verses? Jesus is, is trying to give them some instruction. We get to listen in. For one thing, he reminds them that the Christian life is a life of believing, loving obedience. If you, if you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you love him. John, uh, the, later on in the New Testament, we'll read, those, you, you love him though you've not seen him. That's the wonderful thing. So in our generation, you know, Peter got to see Jesus. John got to see Jesus. We don't, but we still love him. That's part of saving faith. If you, if, you, if you trust in him, you love him. And if you love him, you by nature will obey him. How are we going to live? Those, they had such a blessing. They had Jesus with them. And Jesus says, we have it better. We have the Holy Spirit in us permanently enabling us to follow Christ enabling us to understand his word keeping us 
from falling away, guiding us to the end. And as the guarantee that God will accomplish and fulfill his salvation, that we have a place in heaven through Jesus Christ. As I said from the beginning, these are promises made to those who know Christ as Savior, to those who believe in him as Savior, who have trusted in him as Savior. These are the ones who recognize their sin and that Christ died for their sin, and they've turned from their sin to Christ. And received, they've confessed their sin and received the gift of salvation. Have you come to that place in your life where you recognize you were a sinner in need of a Savior and trusted in Him as your Savior? Kind of, it's called the great exchange sometimes. You give Him your sin, He gives you eternal life. What a deal. Have you trusted in Christ as Savior? For those of us who know Christ as Savior, that's a great blessing to remember and think about it. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we see here, we have so much he's given. God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, giving us understanding, filling our heart, enabling us to serve and honor him. If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you see what Christ offers? And I would just urge you to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord that he might open your eyes to see Christ and trust in him. For those of us who know him, may God give us the grace to escape the idea of thinking that obey is a dirty word. May God grow us in our love for him. And may God grow us to be more like Christ. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit, for without his enabling, we could never be conformed into the image of your Son. Yet, Lord, that's our desire. We want to know him, love him, serve him, honor him in our lives. Help us, Father, to grow in that desire and in that path. Father, if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, would you open their eyes to show them their need and show them the Savior they need. And this we pray in Jesus' name.